This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Is anyone here for the first time? Wow. Welcome. Are you first timers? This is the first time you've been to a meditation center at all, or the first time you've been to the Austin Zen Center? Both. Both. First time you've been here. I um, I think that there were some people who came this morning for the beginner's instruction. Are you still here? No. Um, I'm doing a number of different ceremonies this week, and I started last last weekend, and have been doing these ceremonies um, and various activities associated with. Um, the next sort of step in my training, I guess you could call it. And um, this one of the, the items that I'm doing is, it's called a jundo, and it's basically walking around to different altars and making offerings of incense and bows as a way of appreciating and giving gratitude to different bodhisattvas, buddhas, and ancestors, and protector, protector spirits. So for example, there's a protector spirit that lives in the kitchen that keeps the ovens going. And one of the, uh, during this jindo, as I'm walking around, one of the last stops is to go outside and, uh, and make, give bows at the front gate. And since we don't have a gate here, we don't have like a monastery with a you know, front gate, I figured that we should just designate that the front gate is right at the entry point, you know, where the sign that says Austin Zen Center is. That's gonna be the front gate. So going to that place, that seems like a you know, likely place, but one of the last stops on this jindo is to go there and to set out a bowing mat and, you know, do prostrations and offer incense. And I was doing that just as the people were arriving for the beginner's <laughs> instruction. And I felt, I felt uh, both delighted and sorry for them. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, <laughs> here I am. And like, is this what we're going to be doing? <laughs> um, A uh, few people asked me today to talk about uh, talk about teachers and talk about transmission and lineage. We had a visiting teacher here last week, Carla Antonaccio, and she spoke about lineage in her Dharma talk, in particular focusing on the women ancestors and looking at the his- history in Zen, and uh, in particular looking at our founder in Japan, Ehe Dogen's writings on women in, uh, in Zen. And um, part of one of the other ceremonies that I'm doing this week and, and beyond, in the next couple of weeks, when I go uh, to Tasahara, which is my home temple, my home monastery, um, is called a Busarai and it's bowing to the ancestors. And I think maybe somebody made an announcement saying that I would be continuing this practice 
today. Um, but basically what it is, is in Zen, the topic of lineage or the concept of lineage is very, very important. And I'm going to get into that a little bit in this talk. But lineage, as a, in the sense of when you become a monastic or when you take on vows and you enter into a Buddhist order, you're basically joining a family. And I've been talking over the past couple months a little bit about what is this, what are the customs of this family? Or what, are the, what is Zen culture like? Right? What is a community like a Zen center? What are some of the customs? And I think I also mentioned um, somebody telling me a couple weeks ago, um, somebody who had been part of the Sangha and had gone away and done other things for a while and then came back into the Sangha. And uh, this person said to me, just appreciating how, the, appreciating the culture of a Zen center where, in general, people are pretty kind <laughs> to one another and pretty respectful. Of course, when things get heated and there's conflict, just like with families, you can imagine, the shit hits the fan sometimes, right? Um, but he was remarking on how, uh, what a jewel it is. What a treasure to have a community where people are there in the spirit of uh, wanting to wake up wanting to be more compassionate in their lives, wanting to uh, find a little more wisdom. Right. And I, I totally agree. And I think that's what led me to join this family of Buddhism. And in particular to, uh, I guess you could say, to take it as far as I've taken it. Yeah. And... Um, my own family, over the years, watching me go from somebody who's just curious about meditation. I learned how to meditate when I was about 14. Not Zen meditation, but uh, a different form of meditation. I was always interested in meditation, and that's what basically brought me into Zen, was wanting to go deeper in uh, the study of my own karma, the causes and conditions that brought me into this world and, and uh, uh, influence and direct and mold kind of where I come from and what my thinking, how my mind is structured, like how I think about things, right? And going into a Zen Buddhist training temple like this one, this is kind of a training temple, it's a lay temple, mostly lay members, um, not to say that people don't ordain as priests here, um, but this is this is a training temple of some kind. It's not a monastery, right? It's not a monastic training temple, but it is definitely a place where people go to get their Zen workout. Right? There's lots of different avenues into into that. But this family, so, so in this Busarai and the ancestors, the idea in Zen is that the ancestors, this lineage, goes all the way back to Shakyamuni Buddha, and even before, even before Shakyamuni Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, who sat under the Bodhi tree and woke up 2,500 years ago. 
the idea in Zen is that this lineage is unbroken. And we know that's not true in the sense of literally true. It's not a true thing that it's an unbroken lineage. Um, however, when you look through the stories of these ancestors, you can see how important lineage, the concept of lineage, was to them. And in this process of bowing, so, I'm, so during one of these ceremonies, this busarai, I offer incense and I bow for each ancestor, starting from before the Buddha, the seven Buddhas before Buddha. And then, and then I you know, offer incense for the next ancestor. And I do this all the way to this temple's founder, Shunbo Zenke, who is one of my teachers at the San Francisco Zen Center. And it's interesting to do this bow because it's physically demanding to do a prostration, to do as many, and I haven't counted them. I think it's kind of interesting that I have not actually counted how many bows there are because, um, yeah, part of me doesn't want to know. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, it's been pretty grueling. But also... Um, when this ceremony is happening, we have a doan, somebody, who, one of the bell ringers, who's ringing a bell for each ancestor name. And so the bow happens, I'll say something like, Ehe Dogen, Daiosho, and I'll bow, and I'll put my head to the ground and raise my hands above my head. And then I'll stand up again, and I'll say, this can only happen between a Buddha and a Buddha. And then I do it again, and I stand up and say, this can only happen between a Buddha and a Buddha. And this goes on for, I don't know how many names. More than 60, less than 120, something like that. It takes about an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and a half to do all the bows. And in this process, however, like I'm, I'm, ch I'm reading off this list of ancestors, which, I ch which you know, are chanted here. We chant the ancestors every day. And um, sometimes I forget, or I lose my place in the ancestors. And then the doan, the person who's ringing the bell, who's got the sheet there, reminds me. You just skipped one, or you just skipped ten. <laughs> so I'll go back, right? And then I get to do this bow, and I get back up you know, from the prostration, and I say, this can only happen between a Buddha and a Buddha. And I just have to say, I don't know if that mean, what that means to your ears. But for myself, as I've been going through this ceremony, I'm not, I'm, act, I'm not actively thinking about what does transmission mean? What does it mean to have transmission? By the way, the ceremony that I'm going to be undertaking, the, the larger ceremony of which this is preliminary practices for, or this is part of, it's a 21-day ceremony that culminates in two evenings, two evening ceremonies. And <clears throat> this transmission, it's not like I'm thinking about what does it mean to have transmission, but in the process of putting my entire body into it and my mind to remember the names and then to find my way back on track if I forget, right? Only a Buddha and a Buddha. This can only happen between a Buddha and a Buddha. 
and I look at the Doan who's just said, you know, you've missed one. And I feel like, yes, this can only happen between a Buddha and a Buddha, between me and you. And actually, what it means is this can only happen because all of us are doing it in our own way. We're all in it. What I mean by that is that we're all alive here and in this moment. And everything that we are and bring to this moment is all here and coexists with, you know, whether it looks pretty, <laughs> whether it seems harmonious or not, it doesn't really matter because that's reality. Reality is that we're all here and we're breathing and we're alive and we're practicing. We're all finding ourselves in our lives. So in terms of talking about teachers, when, um, when Rich and Eric asked me about, you know, can you tell, tell us something about your teachers or how did, you choo- how did you choose your teachers? I think my first response was something like, oh no, you don't want to know about that. <laughs> In the sense that um, you know, I, I feel like I have, I have been blessed with m- having many, many different teachers. And one of the ceremonies that I will be starting when I go to the monastery in a few days is uh, a personal, I'll set up a personal altar and do my own private practice, uh, private ceremony, um, giving gratitude and thanks to my teachers. And I'm, I'm supposed to find an image of them, each of them, and to put them on the altar. And then I'll make, you know, prostrations and make offerings and I'll... Um, invoke gratitude, right? And there's so many different teachers that I've been thinking of. And so since, I, since this question has come up, I thought about some of the teachers that are still alive and some of the teachers that have passed. And I felt like part of me doesn't really want to talk about the teachers that are still alive, interestingly. Um, and then I thought about the teachers that have passed, and I was like, yeah, I, I don't really want to talk about them either. <laughs> however, however, I will say that um, one, one question that I actually had for, for you, because I don't know um, how people, what people think of when they think of the word, just the word teacher, or thinking about teachers in your life, people who have been your teachers, what comes up for people? Even before I started practicing Buddhism, I think, for me, the idea of a teacher, um, I was very fond of teachers. I liked school. I liked being in school. I didn't like all my teachers. Definitely. Definitely not. In fact, some teachers, I think I was pretty, a horrible child too, a horrible student. Um, but I like the idea of having teachers, and I like the idea of learning, learning from teachers. And at uh, one point, before I went to college, um, I had read something or I had a conversation with somebody about like how to make the most of your college experience. I can't remember what it was exactly, but the one thing that stuck out was 
this idea that you could go into a classroom. I was going to a very large university, so it was very, like the classroom sizes were ridiculously huge compared to the small uh, college prep school that I was in high school at. And so I read this thing about this, and the, the, uh, the suggestion was to go into your classroom and pretend that you and the teacher there are the only people in the room, in some sense. Like if, a, if it was a lecture, if it was a large lecture where there's not going to be a lot of discussion, right? But just to pretend that you know, you're, you're receiving this lecture, but like, in some sense, don't be afraid to, to ask the teacher, to raise your hand and say, well, what about this? And so that, somehow that stuck with me in college, and I went through college kind of figuring out which teachers I felt like I could do that with, who would meet me there. Right? Some teachers would, just would not meet you there. Right? They're just like, this is a large, like, there's 400 people here. <laughs> I'm not going to answer your questions. Right? Um, and I'd show up after class. <laughs> so when you said this, uh, you know, um, I think that that initial uh, mode of going into college, I think that that served me well in going into college, and I think it it there was a thread of that that went on through having teachers later on in my life um, in my Zen training. So, but let me return to this question for you: What comes up when you think of a teacher? Does it seem like a, like what's the feeling that comes up in you when you think of a teacher? Pleasant? Unpleasant? Kind of being, neutral? Being insulted in a certain way. Being insulted in a certain way. <laughs> <laughs> being challenged. Being challenged? Mm -hmm. How about insulting? Have you been insulting, too? Yes. Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> now, uh, yes, Rich. I was just thinking that I, I work in a public school, and so the kids are assigned teachers. Teachers are chosen for them. Yes. Right? But when you're an adult, you can choose your teacher, right? Sometimes. <laughs> More or less. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, I yeah, think. yeah, you, you can, you can, at the very least, you can drop out of school. You could, or you can <laughs> say, I want to take that class because that teacher is, yeah, my is good, and I think they'll teach, you know, yes, you can pick the, you know, and so there's a certain element of, of motive, like that your agency is increased as you get older, and you can, yes, you're, you're mm -hmm. relating to the teacher because you want to learn from that person and not because you've been assigned that person, right. And it's like a deliberate, conscious connection with that person. You said, I, I choose to be with this person because I like what they're saying or I want to learn more from them or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. I think it, when you say, was it good or bad? It's like, well, sometimes when you get assigned a teacher, you just get whatever you get. Uh-huh. Yes. But when you choose someone, it's like, this person's qualities are things that I emulate or want to emulate and learn more about. You know? Mm -hmm. I'm just... Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, thank you. That makes, um, yes, I agree. Interestingly, when I think about being a part of a family, 
sometimes you don't get to choose your family. <laughs> In fact, you usually, well, you can, I guess you can choose some of your family. But uh, you can choose your friends. Like, this, you know, people say this quite a bit, like, oh, well, the friends are people you choose, where your family you don't really choose. You're, you're born into your family, right? I think the same is true of a Zen family. You don't get to choose your Zen family. I mean, you can choose whether or not you be, you're in the family, you know, whether you participate. But in terms of the family members, you go, you've got the, you know, your crazy uncle, <laughs> your weirdo cousins, right? There's, there's all kinds of people you wouldn't necessarily choose that are in your Zen family, too, right? Which I would have to say is part of, the, part of what makes it a family, and part of the practice, actually, right? So I remember talking to uh, the, the question, come, the question has come up often in any Zen training space. How do I choose a teacher? Especially in a place like um, the San Francisco Zen Center where there are, what, like dozens of teachers running around? Like, how do you choose a teacher when there's, like, dozens of them? And this grips people because they feel like they have to have one, you know. I need to get a teacher, and I, you know. And then this, this you know, the, the, the conversation comes up of, well, will you be my teacher? You know. Maybe they'll say no. Has anyone ever asked somebody to be their teacher and been rejected? <laughs> You're like, hmm, yes. Uh, it, was, it was kind of, it was more like, well, what do you mean by that? Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One of my teachers who I spoke to quite a bit about the question of how to choose a teacher. I mean, I was actually quite fine with not having a chosen teacher as long as I could not have one person who's like, okay, you are my teacher. I saw, like, I talked to everybody in, you know, and got to know different people who were teachers and thought of them as, you know, they can be my collective teachers right, as a group. But when you uh, want to ordain as a priest, you have to choose one. And so that became like this anxiety, like how do I choose the right one? Right? And I had one teacher uh, who was not taking on students because she didn't have the, uh, she didn't go through the right hoops she, she didn't want to, <laughs> I think, go through the, the right hoops to become a, a teacher uh, who could take on students in the same way as other teachers. What I mean by that is ordination teacher. And I asked her how she chose her teacher, or I asked her if I, I had said something about my uh, difficulty in choosing. You know, should I go with this person? Should I go with that person? You know, what makes the most sense? And I've switched teachers a number of times as well, um, which is a painful process to say to your teacher, yeah, I'm going to go study with this other person. Right? It's very painful. It can be very painful. I mean, maybe they're like, oh, finally, thank you. <laughs> but um, this, this one teacher said to me, uh, well, do you think that looking at my personality and looking at how I am, do you think that I would have chosen the teacher that I actually have? And I'm not going to name names here. 
but she said, you know, do, do you think I would actually choose this person? Like, this person is so different from me and so not how I want to be, but yet this person is my teacher. And that was a big uh, uh, aha for me, in a sense. So, like, do you choose somebody who you want to emulate? Maybe. Maybe you do. My, my one, one, one of my teachers, Tia Strozer, and I can say, I can safely tell you this story. She, one of her teachers was Katagiri Roshi, uh, and she was his anja, which means she was his personal attendant, as opposed to the ceremonial attendant. She was his anja, so she took care of, you know, making him tea, uh, maybe she did his laundry, she took, you know, picked up around the abbot's the cabin, or wherever he was living. Um, and she, she told me that one of the things about him, that she, the reason she chose him was the way he held his teacup. The way he held his teacup, it, something resonated with her and her heart opened. And she would, you know, she just loved to sit with him and watch him. So like most of her job as Anja was basically being an attendant and she would sit there and just watch him like read or drink his tea. And she was like, this is perfect. This is perfect. <laughs> and I'm sure there was more to their relationship than, than that. Um, going back to the first example of the, the teacher who, who said that she didn't choose her teacher, that, uh, that she didn't want to emulate him. What she said was, that of all the different people that she had practiced with and, and studied with, something in him sparked something in her that led her to some deeper place that she just didn't get to as easily with other people. And it wasn't, it had nothing to do with how he, you know, his demeanor or she didn't know what it was. And actually she was, and she is uh, still a huge um, shout out to not knowing and the how we can trust in our own not knowing there's something that's there we don't most of the times we want to understand it right and we have a very analytic mind and an analytic way of going about it we you know come up with our reasons our pros and cons you know we might even have like a chart where we write down like these are the pros these are the cons and we try and figure it out right and Zen practice, if there's one thing it is, not, <laughs> is figuring it out. We don't figure things out in Zen. So if we're not figuring it out, how do we do it? What do we rely on? You know, 30 years ago when I was looking for a Zen teacher, I hardly had any choices. <laughs> I was reading Ten Directions. Yeah. That Tetsugin was in near New York City somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that was it. You know, I was within for a few years. And then I also then read in Ten Directions that Dino Glory was starting Monastery in upstate mm -hmm. New York. So I went there. Yeah. And I was within until he died. Wow. And, uh, and so he died, and I had to find somebody. So that's my only sort of choice, was it? Yeah, yeah, and sometimes that's the way it is, yeah. right? It actually makes it easier in some ways, yeah. right? You don't have a choice. It's like this is the person, you, this is the teacher. 
And what happens in that relationship is a mystery. It's mysterious how, how connection happens, right? In Zen, face-to-face -face transmission between teachers and students, between students and students, between teachers and teachers, right? There's an unfolding of the Dharma within the interactions themselves. Now, you can have a teacher that gets under your skin, <laughs> right? And, and actually, is, you know, there's a conflict with. I would have to say that my own relationship with my root teacher has been, you know, I think we've had our share of not meeting, right? It's like we're not meeting. So we try and figure it out, what's going on here? Again, not really figuring it out, but taking a step back and then coming back together. Taking a step back, coming back together. Right? And like I said, I've left teachers before. I've said I'm going to study with somebody else as well. I think the main thing that, um, in terms of this, you know, what is, what is it to, what is teaching? What is a teacher? Ideally, everything is our teacher. Our life is our teacher. Our friends are our teachers. And then we might find somebody who, we say, you know, I'd like to study with you for a while. Or it could just be there's a place where practice is happening, a community where practice is happening. And people come in and say, I'd like to be a part of this for a while. I don't know where it's going to go. I'm not making a big commitment, maybe. Maybe I am. But I'm curious. What's evoked in me? Right? What do I learn about my own causes and conditions? Where I am in the world? how I conduct myself, what are the most important things in this lifetime? And if being with, with good friends in the, on the spiritual path together, being with teachers, helps you to stay connected to that question for yourself, that's a good teacher, right? A teacher isn't gonna give you something that you don't actually already have the seeds for growing yourself. I think that's a huge point. I want to read a little bit of a story. This is a book, The Blue Cliff Record. This is a book of stories. Stories between, uh, basically stories, they're family stories. Really, they're family stories. Now, most of these stories were compiled by, in the Rinzai family, and the Soto family, uh, it, they, they, they overlap and they intersect. And actually, the entire Rinzai lineage is kind of snuck into the Soto lineage when you look at the papers, the transmission papers. Okay. This is one of such story about a teacher and a student. A monk came to Wu Chu from the congregation of the master of Ting Chu. Wu Chu asked, how does Ting Chu's Dharma path compare to here? 
So Wu Chu is the, is the teacher, and this monk comes in and asks him this question. This monk from another place comes in and says, how does the, how does the Dharma path compare? Uh, sorry, uh, the teacher asks this incoming monk, how does, this, how does Ting Chu's Dharma path compare to this place? The monk said, it is not different. Chiu said, if it's not different, then you should go back there. And he hit him. <laughs> the monk said, there are eyes on the staff. You shouldn't carelessly hit people. Chiu said, today I've hit one. And he hit him again, three times. The monk thereupon went out. Chu said, all along there's been someone receiving an unjust beating. The monk turned around and said, what can I do? The handle is in your hands, teacher. Chu said, if you want, I'll turn it over to you. The monk came up to Chu, grabbed the staff out of his hands, and hit him three times. Chu said, an unjust beating, an unjust beating. The monk said, there's someone receiving it. <laughs> Chu said, I hit this fellow carelessly. Immediately, the monk bowed. Chu said, yet you act this way. The monk laughed loudly and went out. Chu said, that's all it comes to, that's all it comes to. <laughs> There's a pointer in the... Uh, you know, a little fray, a little verse before the case, and I'll read that now. The subtle point, the jewel sword, perpetually revealed, present in front of us. It can kill people, and it can bring people life. It's there, and it's here, gaining and losing together with us. If you want to pick it up, you're free to pick it up. If you want to put it down, you're free to put it down. But say... What's it like when not falling into guest and host, when interchanging without getting stuck? To test, I'm citing this old case. Look. So what do you think of this story? <laughs> yes? What's the purpose of the story? Of oh, oh, yes, yes. What is the purpose of a story? What do you think the purpose of a story is? What would you like for me to say? <laughs> <laughs> I want to say I want you to say what you think the uh, the answer to your own question is. You missed it right there. You missed it. It was behind you. You just missed it. It was behind me. It was behind me. Oh. Focusing the wrong side. What is the purpose of a story? I think in your story, it combines student and teacher. They're not fixed identity. They can switch roles. They can, your teacher can be your student, or you can be the teacher to your teacher. Yes, there's some dyna there's a dynamic turning happening in this. Right? You know, if, are you familiar with this idea of guest and host? Right. Being the host, you invite people in as your guest. Right. When you turn, when you are on this path together, turning the Dharma, being able to, if we were rigid in our, in our roles, 
right? I'm the teacher, you're the student, right? There's a fixedness to that. There's no play. Now, at the same time, if you say there's no such, there's no difference between teacher and student, that's not quite getting it right either, right? So you can't do away with teacher and student, and yet you can't fix teacher and student. This lineage going back all the way to Shakyamuni Buddha is their stories, one story after another, of exchanges between teacher and student. And through these books and through these stories, the purpose of these stories, I think, the reason that they were collected, is that they showed us something, they turned something. Right? They illuminate areas where we are likely to get stuck. And they kind of give a little bit of a push or a, you know, a wedge there. Don't get stuck. They're not dead, these stories. Right? They could be. You can consider them to be dead. And yet, when, they, when we read them, when we tell them, when we study them, we find out, how do these relate to my own life? What do they illuminate in my own way of thinking, in my own uh, sometimes stuckness, sometimes liberated? What's revealed when we turn them? And actually, how do you turn them with all beings, with everything that's in your lives? as opposed to having it be something that's cut off from your life. I have a group of people right now who are studying, uh, studying the precepts. And I have to say, it's studying the precepts. Uh, like how, do, how do people study the precepts? I mean, we can learn what they are. We can try to apply them to our lives. right? And a lot of it's actually how do we keep connected to them? And so we've got this precept study group where we meet once a week and we read together and we talk about our lives and how the precepts have arisen in our lives. And we get to kind of unpack this stuff, right? Using our, our language, right, and our own stories. We tell our own stories. One of my, uh, one of my early teachers uh, has collected a bunch of different stories as kind of modern koans. Right. He collects modern koans. These little, little vignettes that illuminate something. Right? All of these stories are just fingers. They're fingers pointing to the moon. Whether they resonate, whether they, they uh, enter, you know, we, can't we can't necessarily control that. I often find that with koans in particular, that most of them just go right over my head. I don't understand what's going on in them. Uh, what I do find is that I'm do if I'm doing a lot of sitting, they make a lot more sense. <laughs> they start to really make sense. And so that's, that itself is a reveal to me. It reveals something to me. Not that the point is to, you know, the goal, it's not that the goal is to understand the stories and to say, oh yeah, I got this one. Maybe, maybe for some people it is. But in Soto Zen, at the very least... There isn't necessarily a, it's not koan, there isn't a koan curriculum 
right? But they infuse our practice. Their stories, like fa- their family stories, right? I've run over time. Let me just end by saying that um, for the next couple days, I will be continuing to do these different ceremonies as I prepare for leaving for Tassajara. At the end of this today, I will be doing the Busarai, which is the bowing, and I've, um, I've made it available that if people want to participate in the bowing, they can join me. Uh, several people have joined me al- already during the week. Um, tomorrow there's going to be a half-day sit from 8 to noon, and I'll be doing the Busarai during that time as well. I have yet to figure out where it's going to happen. I thought about just doing it in the zendo, but I don't really want to disturb the people who are sitting. Um, but we'll figure it out. But um, something magical happens in the giving over to a, to something like a ceremony. Of course, in the beginning, when you first start learning how to do ceremonies, it's all awkward and weird, and it feels like, what, what the hell am I doing here, right? And, and ceremonial life may not be your cup of tea either. But it's something that we can play with. What's revealed when we do this together? What's revealed when we put our bodies and our voices into harmony with one another? How do we drop our, our own individual small self, the small stories that we tell, and enter into a larger tradition, a path, a structure, and just disport freely in it. That's kind of where I am right now as I'm about to leave for this next, uh, this trip to Tassajara. I think the announcements have already been made about closures, and not closures, but that we'll be doing informal zazen for the week that uh, the Sangha week is happening. Thank you very much for your presence.